1 Corinthians, if you want to turn to chapter... Actually, if you want to find two places in your Bible, Acts chapter 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Acts chapter 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, you see on your sheet there the statistics. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see the statistics. 16 chapters, over 400 verses, 9,462 words. Uh, the author is Paul. Whoa. Um, he is writing this approximately 57 A.D. Um, you'll see a lot of people will date it around that time, some a little more, some a little less. But it's one of the earlier um, letters that he wrote to the churches. Um, the church of Corinth was founded by Paul, and he was there for 18 months. You look at this in Acts 18. You'll look at Acts 18. If you look down verses 8 to 11, it says, And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Jump to verse 11. And he, meaning Paul, continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So Paul, on his missionary journeys, establishes this, uh, this church there in Corinth. And if you jump to cha- uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I, I know I talk fast, forgive me, uh, verse 15 when Paul is speaking to these Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians 4.15, For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. So Paul is basically saying, look, I birthed you. I gave you the word of God. I kind of led you to Christ. So Paul is claiming that, you know, that, that role in their lives. And it seems like what happens is after Paul leaves Corinth, all hell kind of breaks loose. I mean... Grave disorders seem to crop up in the church, and that, that tends to be what happens when the leader leaves, unfortunately. Uh, when the leaders leave or the leadership leaves, uh, when the cat's away, the mice play. You just look at Moses. Moses goes up on a mountain, and the Bible says the children rose up to play, and it wasn't the time to play with patty cake. It was a very lewd and wicked type of playing. Uh, and it looks like Paul is, in the book of Acts, going back and forth to Corinth, from Ephesus, which was nearby, to kind of put those fires out. So Acts 18 is the first visit, but then you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are written near the end of Paul's stint in Ephesus. Paul's in Ephesus about three years, and he's writing Corinthians and 2 Corinthians near the end of his time in Ephesus. So it's like he's, been, he's going back and forth, always kind of checking up on them. And if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll look at verse 14. 2 Corinthians 12, 14. Um, Paul speaks of paying a third visit to Corinth. Whether it happened, I don't know, but he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 14, um, Behold, the third time I'm ready to come to you. Chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. So it looks like Paul has been going back and forth to this awful church trying to kind of put the fires out. And In fact, if you look at chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Now this is 1 Corinthians, right? This would be the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. But look what he says in chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote unto you an epistle not to company with fornicators. So it looks like Paul might have even written to them before this letter. Now that letter is lost. God didn't intend for it to be saved as Scripture. But Paul obviously wrote to them before this letter and said, I told you not to, you know, mess around with these people. And if you go to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going back and forth. He's writing letters. He's like a dawdling parent almost. And in 1 Corinthians 1.11, you see this. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So despite Paul's best efforts, despite his letters, despite him going back and forth, the disorder continued. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Let me show you how the disorder just continued. 5.1. It is reported commonly... That there's fornication among you, right? It's just full-blown. Look at chapter 11, verse 18. Just a little introduction here. 11, verse 18. 
1 Corinthians 11, 18. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. <laughs> so they're, all, they're a mess. They're a mess socially. They're a mess morally. They're a mess. Paul's been trying, but they are a mess. And the word Corinthians, Corinthians means ornaments. That's what the word means. You know, those things you hang on a tree, ornaments. Those things that are decorative. Those things that are outward. Those things that embellish the eye, the eye candy. That's what Corinth was. Corinth was all show and no go. <laughs> they talked a good game and they were rotten on the inside. They were a mess. So the book of Corinthians is directed to the carnal Christian. The Christian outwardly who puts on a nice show, but inwardly... He's a mess. She's a mess. It's a book of reproof. That's what it is. It's reproof. Reproof is censure. It's blame. It's charging them with faults. It's not like the book of Romans. The book of Romans is doctrine. The book of Romans is like precepts. The book of 1 Corinthians is, is just charging them with faults. It's a book about what not to do as a believer and a church. We don't glean good examples from the Corinthian church. We glean bad examples. We learn from their mistakes what not to do. And Pastor Mel used to say that if, if we were like any church, unfortunately, we're the most like the Corinthians because we're in a cosmopolitan city. We have culture. We have savvy. We have resources. That was the Corinthian church. And Pastor Mel used to say back in Staten Island that if we're like any church, unfortunately, in this New York City area, we're probably like the Corinthians. So that wasn't a compliment, I don't think, but that was a true statement. And uh, Corinth was the rival of Athens. So it's a big city, Corinth. It's, it rivaled Athens. And uh, those people there, they were proud of their language. They were proud of their literature. They were proud of their learning. They were proud of their logic. They were good Greeks. They were into their wisdom, into their philosophy, into their learning. Look at chapter 1, verse 21. So when Paul engages this church, this cosmopolitan, intellectual, heady, uh, carnal church, he comes right in the first chapter and he whams them right at the knees. And he hits them right that Greek mind. He renounces man's wisdom right from the jump. He says in 121, he says, for after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Paul doesn't get through one chapter and he goes, wham, I'm going to hit you right where you live, Corinthians. Your wisdom never got you closer to God. Me preaching like a crazy preacher up here, that got you the truth of God. All right? And that's where he goes, that's where he starts. Now the key verse, uh, well, before I get to that, I mean, we could, you could write these verses down. These carnal Corinthians, they were addicted to immorality. You see that in chapter 6. He's telling them to flee fornication. He's telling them, like, don't join your body to a harlot. Why? Because that's what they were doing. <laughs> chapter 11, it talks about them being drunken. So they're a mess. They are a mess. A carnal, fleshy mess. And if you look at verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, it's a good key verse, verse 2 of the first chapter. He says, it's, his, it's in his address, he says, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. This is the first epistle directed to a specific church. Remember, Romans was to all that be in Rome. It was a little different type of address. This is now addressing a specific congregation. And notice what he does. He clarifies what it means to be a saint. He tells you, the church of God, that's a spiritual designation, right? There's a church of God here. We got some church of God in Haiti. You got some church of God in Maryland. There's church of God everywhere, right? If you're in Christ, you're in the church of God, in that spiritual organism. So he says, the church of God, church universal, which is at Corinth, local, physical. So you're the part of the body of Christ that happens to meet at Corinth. And uh, in a church that's full of cliques, because they were full of cliques, the Corinthians were cliquish, he gives his definition of a saint. It's right there in verse 2. 
Number one, sanctified in Christ. Set apart as neither Jew nor Gentile anymore. You're in the body of Christ. You're not of Paul. You're not of Apollos. You're not Italian. You're not Jewish. You're one body. That's important designation. That's why he tells them, because they were cliquish. Then he says, with all that in every place. So you got brethren in Ephesus. You got brethren in Corinth. We got brethren in Staten Island. We got brethren in the Philippines. We got brethren in Mexico. We got brethren all over the place. With all that in every place. You're all in the same body. And how do you get in? That call on the name of the Lord. That's how everybody gets in. You get into the body of Christ by calling on Jesus Christ to save you. That's not a newsflash, right? <laughs> if you thought you got into God's church some other way, you're in the wrong church. <laughs> you get into the body of Christ by calling on the name of the Lord, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the key message is, and we'll talk about this at the end, God willing, the Lordship of Christ. We'll talk about what that means at the end. And Jesus Christ is presented as our wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.24 says He's our wisdom. They've got worldly wisdom. Jesus Christ is our wisdom. So the breakdown's pretty basic. you got half the book, sort of, is what's reported to Paul, and the other half is what's inquired by Paul. That's him asking. First he addresses what he hears, then he kind of asks some questions and reaches out. But um, what I'm going to endeavor to do is go through each chapter and kind of touch on what we learn from the problems in each chapter. Because we learn from their mistakes some truths. So let's start with... Uh, tilt what? Tilt this? Which direction? This way? This way. Good? All right. That's for you guys. All right. Um, miles worse. Okay. Try to listen good. Come in person. It helps. All right. Um, I slipped that in there. Let's uh, go to 1 Corinthians 1. Tell me if I need to move it more, Josh. I will. Um, let's go to chapter 1, and let's talk about what we learn from all their mistakes. All right? Chapter 1, look at verse 12. Let's read verses 12 to 16. The Bible says, Now I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, that's Peter, and I have Christ. That was the real spiritual guy. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name, and I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Beside, I know not whether I baptized any other. We learn that baptism cannot save you from chapter 1. Because you know why? And here's the problem. They were having a problem with divisions. They were having a problem with divisions in chapter 1. In verses 12 to 13, they were making a big deal over who baptized them. Well, I got baptized by Paul. Ooh. Well, I got baptized by Peter. He ate with Jesus. Oh. Well, I got baptized. I'm, I'm of Christ. Oh, you're really, you're the super hyper-separated spiritual guy, right? They would try, well, I got some kind of special mojo because Paul baptized me or Peter baptized me or Apollos baptized me. God's like, listen, in verse 14 and 15, Paul says, I'm glad he didn't baptize more of you a strange thing to say if baptism saved people. He said, I'm glad I didn't baptize more of you because you'd be kissing my feet and making too much of me. In verse number 17, Paul says something very important. This is a salient verse. This is a great verse for all your religious friends. Amen. He says, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That means baptism cannot save them, and baptism is not the gospel. The gospel is what saves you. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's flip over there. And what is the gospel? Hold your place in chapter 1. You see, as you study these letters and know some things about the church that you're talking to, it's the church in Macedonia, the Philippians, or the church at Ephesus, the church at Colossae, when you find out what they're about, you see why God said certain things to certain people. And He said this to these Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, because... They were all divided up. They're making too much of the baptism, right? Like it gave them some kind of special power. Listen, the first person I ever baptized is so far out of church right now. If I had any power to impart anybody, I sure lost it. You know, the first person I baptized, I know who she is. She is so far from church right now, I don't know where she is, right? So there's no kind of mojo that gets imparted on somebody who dunks you, right? Um, and in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, the Bible says, 
brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, lest ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That, my friends, is the gospel for this age. That's what we tell people how to get saved. That's what we preach on the street. That's what we put tracks about. That's the message. Christ died for your sins, negative. Was buried, negative. And rose again the third day. Right? That's the gospel. Not baptism, not church, not God wants to come into your life, not you have a God-shaped hole in your heart. You're a sinner going to hell. Christ died, negative. For your sins, negative. Was buried, negative. And, it's, and rose again, positive. It's 75% negative. The gospel is mostly a negative message. And that's the gospel. That's what we preach. We don't preach, repent. He's not preaching, repent, to be baptized. He's not preaching Acts 2.38 to the church. He's preaching the gospel of the grace of God. Paul calls it my gospel. That's what we preach right now. That's the message for this age. All right, let's go to chapter 2. So what's the second problem? The second problem is they got problem with human wisdom. Those Greeks... It was Greek to them because everything was philosophy and intellectualism and this guy said that guy and they just like to sit around and hear some new things, some new philosophy. And in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul comes right at them and we learn from their mistake that worldly wisdom cannot help you. Worldly wisdom cannot help you. I, I've read Kant. I've read Nietzsche. I've read Kierkegaard. I've read, you know... Uh, all these guys, every, you know what they did for me? Jack squat. Nothing. Titillates your mind, gives you a little buzz in your intellect, makes you sound smart at parties, doesn't help you with your filthy mouth, doesn't help you with your angry heart, doesn't help you be loving your neighbor any better. It just titillates your intellect and does nothing for you. The gospel saves your soul. God's Bible changes your life. And in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, save, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, if you look at chapter 1, verse 22, he says, for the Jew requires a sign, and the Greek seek after wisdom. That is a great diagnosis, friends. Most of us are Gentiles. You know what Gentiles worship? Education. And I'm a teacher, so I could preach. I can get on my soapbox and preach on this because I'm a teacher. We worship, Gentiles worship education. Don't people think differently about someone who's educated? Doctor this, doctor that, right? PhD, MA, BA, it's a lot of BS, right? That's, that's it's all these different degrees, all these letters. I'm not saying the letters are bad. I got letters after my name. M-U-D. But I had to get some letters after my name for my job. I had to get some letters after my name. I had to do my time. I'm not saying it's all evil, but it didn't help me be a better person. Right? We think, they, we think that these really smart people are good people. They're not. They're wicked. Some of the most wicked people in the world were some of the most smartest people that ever lived. They were brilliant, but they were twisted and they were evil. Don't churches, don't churches want to know where the preacher went to school? It trickles down into the church. Right? Doctor, there's so many doctors in the body of Christ. Somebody said the body of Christ must be sick. You know, doctor so-and-so, doctor this, doctor that. You know, I got asked that. Well, where'd you study? Where'd you go to cemetery? I mean, seminary. I, 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 I came out of First Bible Church. I did the Bible Institute there. Oh, thank you. I said, yeah, you're welcome. You know? um, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, 2, Paul says, I'm going to put the testimony of God above worldly wisdom. I mean, that's like a baseball bat right to their knees. The testimony of God, what he said about Jesus Christ is above all the wisdom of the world, all the philosophy, all the books. And when the church puts man's wisdom ahead of God's testimony, we're in trouble. When, the Christian, when Christian psychology and Christian philosophy replaces Bible preaching, we are going down. Amen. And that's what's happened. We've got a lot of teachers in the body of Christ. We get a lot of seminars and retreats 
and talks and sharing, but we have a drought of sound Bible preaching and teaching. And that's why God looks at the church and says, you make me sick. We're not any better with all the doctors we've got. We're sicker. Jesus says, I'm going to throw you up out of my mouth in the book of uh, Revelation. Why? Because the word of God has been put aside and this philosophy, this theory, this approach, this, you know, seminar, this, you know, whatever, we're going to turnkey together. All that stuff makes God nauseous. He says, get your Bible, pray, and let it rip, and God will work a lot of things out. Now, there's a place for counseling. There's a place for biblical counseling. But the heart of it comes out of the Bible. It's the Bible. It's not Christian mojo, right? Uh, In chapter 2, if you look at the end of the chapter, right there, Paul says, God's word from God's spirit will give us God's wisdom. He says, we have received, verse 12, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. He himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. You've got the mind of Christ sitting on your table or sitting in your lap. That's how you learn truth. That's how you learn wisdom. Don't ever let the world steal your Bible. Don't ever let the world say, well, we're just going to put the Bible aside and then we're going to talk about the truth. You know, my daughter had to write a paper for a professor and she kind of combated atheism and he was, you know, I knew what he was going to say. Well, you really can't use the Bible to defend the Bible. Why not? You use science to defend science all the time, you lying hypocrite. Right? They do it all the time. But not you. You've got to put your Bible down and come to them on neutral terms. There are no neutral terms. Once you put your Bible down, you just came on their terms. You lost the battle before you opened your mouth. Never put your Bible down. That's the wisdom of God. That's the mind of Christ. Let them call you a Neanderthal. Let them call you an ignoramus. You're smarter than they are. You're the dumbest Christian is smarter than the smartest lost person on the face of the earth. Chapter 3. They had a problem with carnality. And to the church that had a problem with carnality... We learn that the judgment seat of Christ is going to settle the score. Isn't it interesting that he tells them about this? Right? 3.1. And I, brethren, could not, come unto, could not speak unto you as unto carnal, even as a, I, couldn't, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto yet you are not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able, for you are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and, uh, and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? See, three and four. Well, one saith, I am of Paul, and I, another, I am of Apollos. Are ye not carnal? The Corinthians were babies because they thought the man made the ministry. Oh, you, got, you heard Paul preach? You heard Apollos preach? Oh, that's special. That's amazing. And verses five to seven. The Lord says, I'm not going to read all these verses, but Paul reminds them that men may labor. Apollos was a good man. Paul was a good man. Men may labor, but it's God that's given the increase. It's God that gets the glory. It's God that's working through those men. So with that table set, with that stage set, in the next six or seven verses, this carnal Corinthian church gets some of the best information on the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 9. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. He reminds them that God is the builder. We're just the building. God's doing the work. Verse 11, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He says, hey, God laid the foundation to make any building possible. Nothing would be possible if it wasn't built on the rock, Jesus Christ. Verse 12, how are you building? Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, he gives them six items. The number of man is six. He says, how are you building? Gold. Are you building on the character of God, his deity, gold, the king? Silver. What God did, the price of redemption, silver. Who God did it for, precious stones, people, 
those jewels in your life that are sought after, that God says will one day make up his crown? You see the, see the message there? What are you doing with who God is, gold, what God did, silver, and who God did it for, people? That's what gets a reward at the judgment seat of Christ. And those stones take work to get out of the earth. Wood, hay, stubble, easy to find. Come to my backyard, I got plenty of it laying around the woods. You can find wood, hay, stubble anywhere. It burns real quick. But stones abide the fire. 13. Every man's work, singular, shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work, singular, of what sort it is. Please, how's your work? What sort is it? Not how big is it? Not how noticed is it? What sort is it? What kind of job have you been doing? Why have you been doing what you're doing? Now, this is told to the Corinthians, not to the Romans, not to the Thessalonians, to the Corinthians. You know what that tells me? The antidote for carnal, divisive Christians is more preaching about the judgment seat of Christ. Because they're the ones that got it. First letter and the second letter. He gives it to them again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. They get it twice. They get more about the judgment seat of Christ than any other church throughout all your New Testament. Why? Because that's the antidote. Pastor Mel used to say, one of the great tragedies is the lack of preaching and teaching about the judgment seat of Christ. So much so that if you ask the average Christian, what's the judgment seat of Christ? They have no idea what you're talking about. So much so that when a lady that used to come to this church sat here and started getting the fisheye towards me and started getting sour towards God, you know what she came after me about? Why are you teaching that about the judgment seat of Christ? I don't think you're representing God right. I don't think I like that. I don't think God would do it that way. I said, sure, your God wouldn't do it that way because your God doesn't exist. It's a figment of your imagination. I didn't say that. I said that in my head. I felt tough in my head when I said that. But it's the truth. The carnal, fleshy man does not like that message. And that's why God just puts the bazooka on Paul's shoulder and says, fire away. And he just hits him. He says, God's going to settle the score, man. It ain't about what goes on in this life. You say, it ain't about what you see, all those ornaments. It's about what you're really doing and why you're doing it. God, and God will settle at the judgment seat of Christ. Chapter 4. They got a problem with humility. I told you this was going to be rough. Corinthians is a rough book, rough guys, rough crowd. And in 1 Corinthians 4, we learn that God is the only one whose judgment should matter to a servant. He says, Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You know, Paul had to constantly defend his apostleship to these carnal Corinthians, these carnal babies. If you look over in chapter 9, if you want to just flip over there in chapter 9, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Those are some of the attributes of an apostle, by the way. Or not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. So Paul had to constantly defend himself to these carnal Corinthians. So in chapter 4, if you go back there in verse 5, Paul reminds them that the time is, come, the time is coming when God will do the judging. He says, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. Then we'll see who God approves of. Verse 3 and 4. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judges me is the Lord. He's, he's saying if God's doing the judging at the judgment seat of Christ, then God's the one that matters. He goes, I care what God thinks of me, not what you guys think of me. And now what's the metric that Paul speaks to? What's the, what's, where's God set the bar? Verse 2. It is required in man, stewards that a man be found faithful. All the Lord's looking for is faithfulness. Not talent, not ability, not even zeal. He's really just looking for faithfulness. You know why faithfulness settles things? Because anybody can be faithful. You could be in a hospital bed, unable to get out of there. You could be faithful praying for people. Whatever little thing you got to do, you could be a faithful mom, a faithful friend, a faithful church attender, a faithful giver, a faithful witness. Everybody sitting here today 
can get a reward at the judgment seat of Christ because you can all be faithful with whatever God has told you to do. All he says, be faithful with that. That's amazing. That's a gracious God. You don't need to have some special ability, some special ordination, some special certificate. Just be faithful. If you could just resolve to be faithful where you are and not worry about who's watching, you might just get a good reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Chapter 5. They got a problem with fornication. That's why Pastor Mel said if there's any church that would be like, you know, the church in New York City area, it would be them because, I mean, sex abounds. You can't even walk through, like, Times Square without getting defiled by a billboard. You know, it's just like crazy town. And uh, it's in this chapter we learn that there are two condemnations you can face. See chapter 5? This is tough. I don't totally understand this, but I understand a little of it. So there's this guy, he's messing around with his, uh, his stepmom, and it's wicked, it's, it's wicked. And Paul finally says in verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul orders a believer to be put out of the church for his gross immorality. Now, there's two condemnations. A believer is spared the condemnation in the next life. Amen? You'll never go to hell. You'll never see that condemnation. But a believer can face condemnation in this life, in the flesh. And Paul says, I want you to put that guy out, and I'm going to let Satan, I'm going to sick Satan on him, and let Satan ruffle his feathers, bang him up, give him some condemnation in this life, so that he might repent. Why? So that his spirit might get right with God and be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Because he tries the spirits. What spirit are you of? Right? That's the question at the judgment seat of Christ. Like what manner, what sort, what's your spirit? He says, we're going we're gonna to turn him over to the devil. We're going to remove our prayer. We're going to remove our fellowship. We're going to put him out there and just let the devil have Adam so that maybe he'll get himself right so his spirit can be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I don't understand all that, but I see Paul's intention, and I see the two condemnations. Yeah, he's not sending that person to hell, but it might be hell on earth for a little while while they get themselves right with God. And that's the part we don't like because we want to air condition the pig pen. We don't want to see anybody go through hardship, but there's sometimes we've got to cut it, and you've got to say, Lord, they're your problem, and you turn them over to them, and God says, go get them, Satan, and he sticks the dog on them, and... That's going to be their watershed moment. Will they repent? Will they just go on in their stupidity? That's, that's a big moment. Chapter 6. They got a problem with lawsuits. They're, they're so, in chapter 6, they're taking each other to court like crazy. It does sound like today, yes, yes. Somebody said if you put all the lawyers around the equator, you did a good thing. You know, but um, no offense, Matt. You know, I know Matt, Matt's brother's a lawyer. All right, but he's a good lawyer. There's some good ones out there. Stephen's a lawyer, right? But uh, they're just going crazy with lawyers over here, just nonstop lawyers suing each other. And in verse 7 he says, Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? You know what we learn from their nonsense? We learn that sometimes you got to take the hit for the cause of Christ. Sometimes you just got to eat it for Jesus Christ. See, verse 5 and 6, these carnal believers are suing each other like crazy. He says, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers... What kind of testimony is that? Two Christians suing each other over a few hundred bucks or a disagreement or something like that? Crazy town. Verse 3. Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things pertaining to this life? They pertain to this life. If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. He's saying the least, the lowest schmo in the church is able to judge better than the lost people out there. He's saying, one day you guys are going to judge the, un- the, 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 the fallen angels. 
He's saying, if we're going to judge the fallen angels, can't we judge your nonsense? Your disputes, your disagreements? Verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? Read the end of the book of Psalms. You find out that we're part of that judgment at that white throne. And, not, and, and if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He's saying, guys, if you can't settle it, why can't you just take the hit for Christ? You say, you know what, this guy defrauded me. Let God settle at the judgment seat of Christ. You know why we can't do that? Because we're carnal. Because we want to be right and we want our stuff. Amen. And he's like, if you were really spiritual, Corinthians, you'd say, you know what? Let the Lord settle it. Chapter 7. That is a tough one. Chapter 7. Marriage. True love. <laughs> Chapter 7 is about marriage. They had a problem with marriage. And here's the thing we learn about their problem with marriage. We learn that Paul gives the church instructions on men and women. I don't go to the book of Matthew to learn about divorce. I don't go to the book of Deuteronomy to learn about divorce. I go to my apostle, Paul. And Paul gave us the instructions for marriage, divorce, and remarriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Chapter, verse 10 to 12. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. That's a biblical separation being talked about there. And let not the husband put away his wife, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Some people say, well, that means Paul might have been speaking when he was out of fellowship with God. You're an idiot if you think that. He's saying, I got some new revelation here. This is not based on an old commandment. I'm speaking here to the church. I'm giving you stuff that wasn't said to Moses. It wasn't said in Matthew. Some of it was. See, in verse 10, he says, Unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Some of that is from God's precepts priorly, uh, given before. But some of it's not. So if you want to go to the place where you get the church's instructions on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, don't go to Deuteronomy, though there's some good principles there. Don't go to Matthew 19, though there's some good principles there. Go to 1 Corinthians 7. That's our blueprint for what the church and how the church should approach these male and female relationships. Chapter 8. They had a problem with their liberty. And a lot of Christians do. Verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. How are we doing? Okay so far? All right, I'm going to get through it. Trust me, I'm flying. 8.1, he says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifies. So here's what was going on. They'd go and they'd sell this meat at the marketplace, right? They'd offer this meat to the gods, and obviously the gods didn't show up because they were false gods. So once the meat was out there for a little while, then they'd take that meat, they'd sell it in the market. And hey, man, you get some sirloin half price, that's pretty good. So some of the Christians would swing over to ShopRite, and they'd get some, you know, meat that was offered to Buddha or whoever, and they'd take that meat and say, wow, this is, some, you know, this is like 90% lean, you know, this is good stuff, it's half off. And they're taking it home, they're going to have a, we're gonna have a barbecue, and oh, come on over. And some other Christians are like, listen, listen, that was offered to the false god. That meat's got devils in it. You can't eat that meat. That meat's going to give you agita. It's going to make your intestines turn inside out. It's going to make you spit bats or something like that. You know, you're going to get COVID from it. Like, all that stuff's going to happen. You know, that. so some Christians are like, yo, 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 we can't eat the meat that was offered to idols. And some other Christians are like, what are you talking about? It's just meat. Knowledge tells us it's just meat. You can eat it. I don't care about walking under a ladder or stepping on a crack or all that superstitious stuff. We don't have to worry about that stuff. However, what we learn from this chapter is it's better not to make a brother stumble. That's how we treat our liberty. See verse 4? As concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the Lord, and that there is none other God but one. I walk into that Catholic church, if I'm thirsty, I'm going to put my mouth on the spigot of the holy water thing, I'm going to get a good drink. You know what it's going to do to me? Nothing but quench my thirst. It's not going to curse me. It's not going to plague me. It's water, Right? But some Christians are like, oh, no, you can't do that. That's, oh, no, that's, that's apostate. That's wicked, right? Knowledge says you can do whatever you want. 
Amen? You're free. But in verse number 13, charity says something different. If meat make my brother to offend or stumble, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Knowledge says you can eat the meat offered to idols. It's a deal for you. Man, half price the Buddha meat? Fantastic. I love it. But charity says it'll destroy your brother. And if it makes your brother stumble, don't do it. And would to God more of us could get that lesson down. You could drink what you want to drink. You could eat what you want to eat. You can go where you... You got liberty. But if it makes somebody stumble, you shouldn't do it. And the reason you don't like that and you defend your liberty instead of your love for your brother is because you're carnal. Amen. You're a Corinthian. Amen. And the Corinthians, oh, liberty, I could do whatever, I got liberty. Shut up. You're a baby. You're a baby. Right? Chapter 9. They had a problem with authority. And I, you know, I'm going through every chapter and I'm like, uh... Because when I say this, it's going to sound self-serving, but if I've got to teach the whole Bible, I've got to teach everything. Verse 7 to 9. Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Who feedeth the flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man? Or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? You know, we learn from that problem with authority, we learn that we're supposed to take care of God's servants. I'm just reading it. In verse 7 it says, A servant of God is a soldier, a husbandman, and a a shepherd. You know where else you see those show up? 2 Timothy 2, written to the pastor, written to the man of God. And it says, Timothy, you're a soldier, you're a husbandman, and you're a shepherd. And it says right there, the ox was allowed to eat of the corn he treaded out. He'd be going around that stone, he'd be treading out the corn, and you know what? If anything fell out there, he was allowed to eat it. Don't muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. He says, you're supposed to help these people out. But the Corinthians didn't like that, because they were carnal. They had a problem with authority. Chapter 10. To quote Forrest Gump, that's all I'm going to say about that. Chapter 10, right, Chris? Chapter 10. You know, I actually, I was going back and forth with saying that uh, because somebody unrelated to this Bible study made a comment about, you know, well, I just think, you know, every pastor everywhere should be working a job like everybody else and why we got to do this. And I was just like, listen, man, I said, the church, I, we treated Pastor Mike and Pastor Dean like kings Amen. and it was well-deserved. Amen. So he's going, blah, 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 blah. I said, listen, I said, do you know how long it takes to prepare a message? Amen. And he got quiet for a little bit and answered people's phone calls Amen. and counseled people with their problems and all the while try to keep your heart right so you're a blessing to somebody else. Amen. And there's only 168 hours in a day, in a week, bro. I said, you can't get water out of a rock. I mean, if time is money, you got to... That's what provoked me to say that because the Corinthians got it all messed up. Right. That's a Corinthian spirit. It sounds pious, but it's not. It's an ornament, right? The Bible has a different take on it. Amen. Look at chapter 10. They had a problem with temptation. And from their problem with temptation, we learn about the church's relationship to the Old Testament. How are we supposed to relate to the Old Testament? 1 Corinthians 10.6. He mentions two words, example and ensample. He says of Israel, Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. He's saying what happened to Israel was our example. An example is something you do, right? The prefix ex is something you get out of, right? What do I get out of what you're doing? Do I follow that? Do I not follow that? An example is something you do, something you take out of what somebody's doing. Oh, you did that? It worked? I could do that too. You're a good example to me. I take something out of what you're doing that I could apply to my life and I could do myself. Israel was like that. Israel did some really dumb things. And the Lord says, they're your examples. You know what you take out of what they did? Don't do it. But then he says in verse number 11, now all these things happened unto them for end samples. And they are written for admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. 
What happened to Israel was also our end sample. An end sample is not what you do. An end sample is who you are. An end sample is a type, a model, a picture. You're supposed to put yourself into that pattern and say, huh, if I follow that pattern, then the same thing's going to happen to me. An example is something I take away. Huh, should I do or not do that? An end sample is a type or a picture that if I put myself in that picture, in that model, I'll follow the same steps. Amen. And Israel is an example and an end sample. There, they show us what to do or not to do, and they also give us the pattern of how God works and the principles that He wants to see in our life. That's how we relate to the Old Testament. It gives us good examples. Guys like David, good example. Men like you know, Gideon, some good examples. Isaiah, good examples. And some end samples, right? There's some types and pictures that we learn from. Chapter 11. Chapter 11. They had a problem with order. They were so disorderly. And we learn about God's order by seeing their disorder at the Lord's table. 11 verse 1. Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. We see about God's order in following Paul. Everybody's following a man. Knock it off. Oh, don't follow a man. Yes, you do. We follow Paul. That's an order that God established. That's the thing God wants us to, to follow. He says in verse number um, 12, for, the, for as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. God established an order in the roles of men and women, husbands and wives. See, God's a God of order. God's, God's way of doing things is as important to Him as the end result. He says, I want you to see Paul's pattern. I want you to follow that pattern. Learn from that pattern. You see, what I did with men and women, that's an order. Don't subvert my order. Because every time you disobey God's order, you get chaos. You get things thrown out of order. And now that order trickles down, verses 23, 24, 25. That disorder has messed up the Lord's table. They've messed up how to approach the Lord's table. They've gotten out of order even in their church services. That's a problem. You know, why, you know why we don't like order? Because you have to submit to order. All right, that judge walks in, says order in the court. You know what you're supposed to do? Stand up and do what the judge says. Our Adamic nature hates that. I know better. Who is he to say that? Who is she to say that? I could do it better. What about this? What? God says, submit to my order. That works for husbands and wives, Christians. When you submit to God's order, even when it doesn't make sense, you're blessed because you're honoring the God of order. All right? Chapter 12. They had a problem with spiritual gifts. They made a huge mess of spiritual gifts. Spiritual babies are into spiritual gifts. So whenever Babel talks about their calling, their gift, their initial evidence of the Holy Ghost and all that gas, their babies... They talk to you like you're, oh, you, don't, you haven't had, you don't know the deeper things. You haven't experienced the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost. You are so far from the Holy Ghost, you wouldn't know him if he hit you in the face with a billboard. The Holy Ghost is meek and quiet Amen. and points people to Jesus Christ, Amen. doesn't speak of himself. Amen. So what spirit are you of if you're like, well, I got the gift and I got this and I got a word and I got that. That is not God. It's happening all over the churches, all over churches in New Jersey. People standing up and celebrating their gifts and talking about their gifts, and I got a word from this, and I got a word from that. I want to cast this demon out of here, and I want to do that. Where's the gospel being preached? Look at 12, 12, 13. You know, we learn about this body, about this. We learn about the body of Christ from this divided, carnal church hung up on their gifts. Look what I got. God says, don't look at what you got. Look at what God put you into. See verse 13? For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. He says, the same Spirit put us all in the same body, even the man in chapter 5. Okay? Even the man in chapter 5 that was doing those bad deeds was in the body. So don't think some Christians can do some dastardly deeds and still be saved but just they stepped away from God. Look at verse number 25. 
that there should be no schism in the body, division in the body, separation in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. There should be no divisions in the body. It's a level playing field in the body of Christ. Yes, there are some people that hold an office of a deacon or office of a pastor or office of an evangelist. That doesn't elevate them. That just gives them a different responsibility than you. Oh, I got a gift. Okay, that's great. Have it to yourself before God. Just serve the Lord, Amen. right? Amen. That's, that's the idea here. Um, go to chapter 13. I'm, I'm hurrying. I'm almost there. They had a problem with charity. Charity, which the Bible says is the bond of perfectness. And we learn about how to mature as believers from this immature church. Because charity is the mark of a mature believer. Chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. These spiritual babies are told about charity. Charity has seven letters, God's perfect number. Perfect, perfect charity. They both got seven letters. Because if you want to be perfect, if you want to be mature, if you want to grow in Jesus Christ, you need charity. Charity is the bond of perfectness. It's the mark of maturity. So God lays it on this immature church who so into themselves gives the fullest mention of charity. He gives you chapter 13 with 13 verses in it. He teaches these rebels how to be good rebels. Don't rebel against God. Rebel against your flesh and love each other the way God loves you. That's charity. Chapter 14. They had a problem with tongues. They had a problem with with, with church services. They were so messed up. And the lesson is, the disorder in your personal life will mess up a church. It starts with personal things, and then you see it spiraling into their church relationships. And from this chapter, we learn how a church meeting ought to be conducted. Verse 1. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. You know what they wanted to do? Like babies, they all wanted to make noise. Oh, I want to talk. Look at me. I got a word from God. Oh, look at me. I got a word. Oh, how about I untie bow tie? And they do say in all these weird languages. And who's running around doing this? And, you know, every, a baby wants to be heard. Watch a little kid in class. They always got to get their hand up. They can't just sit and listen and learn. They got, well, I just think, blah, 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 blah. right? They were babies. Verse 23. Verse 23. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. He's saying, do you want to be a barbarian as a church or a blessing? If you're all running around speaking gibberish and claiming to have some special angelic heavenly prayer language, and you know, oh, look at this, and then go, oh, yeah, how about this one? If that's what you're going to do, somebody's going to walk in and say, You guys are nuts. Amen. Right? You guys are nuts. Amen. Right? They're going to leave. They're going to walk and say, This is crazy. Right? I've seen people rolling around on the floor. I've seen people rolling around the floor, barking like a dog. Uh, slithering out of their chair, you know, jumping up and down, like, like, like uncontrollably writhing. That's the gentle spirit of Christ making you uncontrollably shake when you've got to almost be restrained. Somebody's going to kick your legs out and knock you over on a prayer line and say you got slain by the spirit. Who ever fell backwards when they came to God? You fall forwards when you come to God. Only the enemies of God would fall backwards. Who would do it? What is that? And God says, you're going to sit there as a rational human being, you're going to watch that. And a guy off the street, a regular Joe, works a nine-to-five job with calluses on his hands, is going to walk in and say, these guys are nuts, I'm going back to the bar. This is crazy. But if you walk in and you see a guy stand up and preach the word of God with sincerity and conviction, you know what? He might just say, ooh, that's convicting me. The Bible says, um, I think it says down there, uh, where is it that he says it? 24? Yeah, I know that, but then... Oh, 25. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, you see the direction they fall? This way, falling down on his face, he would worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. 
But in verse 31, watch this in 31. Now they all wanted to talk, right? Ooh, ooh, look at me. I got this. Ooh, ooh, ooh. He says, ye may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. He gives these babies a little bottle. He says, look, if you got to speak, you could all speak if you want to. Just make sure it's preaching, not you doing this other weird thing. You don't have to. He says, you guys are babies, so I'll give you a little baba. If you want to speak, you can speak. But it should be to edify people, not to show off your gifts. But 33 is the principle. He says, God is not the author of confusion. All right? 39 to 40. Brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues that all things be done decently and in order. That's the guiding principle. Order, order, order. There's an order to this. We can't all just jump up and start talking at the same time. It's confusion. 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches. I just want to throw that in there for the Pharisees out there that don't think women can ever say anything in church. The context is this tongues mess. All right, lady wants to stand up and give a testimony or something like that. We're not be quiet. You know, I've been in churches where the women can't speak at all. That's that's just that's that's Pharisaical nonsense. The context of them saying that is that the women were leading this like tongues charge. In fact, the first person that ever spoke in tongues on this continent was a woman. Right? They tend to be more spiritual. They tend to be given to some of those things. So he's saying, hey, hey. The women shouldn't be standing up and speaking in tongues. They're kind of getting every rider riled up. It doesn't mean that, you know, sister so-and-so can't stand up and quote a verse that was a blessing to her this week in the congregation. That's just, when you take it to that, that extreme, you just, you became a chauvinistic nincompoop, right? That's just weird, stupid stuff. Chapter 15. I got two more quick ones. 15. We learn about the resurrection. Now, remember this church. This church had a problem with philosophy. This church had a problem with worldly wisdom. So you know what he gives them? The fullest chapter about the resurrection. Because the resurrection is the death stroke to philosophy. 1517. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins. The resurrection just blows philosophy out of the water. Put your Buddhism, your Taoism, your Zoroasterism, your, put every ism on the table. Amen. The resurrection knocks them all off the table Amen. and flips the tables upside down and says, this guy came back from the dead. Amen. This one rose. This Taoism, Buddhism could exist without Buddha. Islam could exist without Muhammad. Catholicism can exist without a Pope. Christianity cannot exist without a risen Christ. Amen. It's different. So what does he do? To the church that's Corinthian, philosophically minded, heady, proud. He says, let me just lay you on about 50-something verses about the resurrection. And you get the greatest chapter on the resurrection to a church that needed to be told how the resurrection blows philosophy out of the water. And lastly, chapter 16, they even had a problem with giving, with offerings. So in 16.1, Paul had to instruct them on offerings because they even were messing that up. It says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, because that's when they met, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. All right, there's some good instructions there. I'm not going to break them down, but how to do offerings. Right? I got, go, to, go back to chapter 1. I got one big idea for you to take away from this whole book. From all their problems, from all their mess, here it is. Ready? I said on your sheet that the theme of the book or the message of the book is the Lordship of Christ. And here's the big idea. When Jesus Christ stops being the Lord of your life, you get disorder in your life. When He's off the throne of your life, you get topsy-turvy in your life. The full title, the Lord Jesus Christ, emphasizes the Lordship of Jesus Christ, right? That's his full title, Lord Jesus Christ. How fitting, then, that the book of Corinthians begins and ends with this title. Four times in chapter 1, two times in chapter 16. Look at 1-3 from the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 1-7 the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, 
that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 16. Jump to the last book. This will be our last verse. Don't worry. Chapter 16. Verse number 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. That means curse. The Lord is coming. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's emphasizing the Lordship of Christ to this carnal church because when He's not Lord, you get disorder. When He's not Lord of your marriage, your marriage will go sideways. When He's not Lord of your thought life, your thought life will go sideways. When He's not Lord in the church, the church will go sideways. If He's not Lord of all, He's not Lord of all, Hudson Taylor said. He's got to be Lord. Shakespeare during Shakespeare's time, they would think about, they, they believed in a natural order, that everything had to be lined up a certain way, and when that order got disturbed or usurped, nature itself would be messed up. You read about in Hamlet, there's a phrase, the time is out of joint. You'll find a lot of Shakespeare plays will start with like storms and thunder and lightning because it's supposed to be indicative of the fact that because something's been disturbed, because the natural order has been messed up, there's, there's just, even nature itself is shaking. And that's how it is in a Christian life. A lot of times when there's storms in your life that are not trials, that are not testings, those storms in your life, because the order that God prescribed with Him at the top and you at the bottom has been disrupted. And when you are not making Jesus Christ Lord of all, you're going to get storms, you're going to get problems, it's going to be rocky road. So keep Jesus Christ Lord, keep Him on the throne, keep yourself submitted, and hopefully you won't end up like this horrible church, this bad example. Let's pray.